Our sermon this morning is going to be from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. So turn to Luke 24 in your Bibles. Be prepared to look here on the screen if you want to follow along there. If you want to use a pew Bible, there are a bunch of pew Bibles in the the seats in front of you. You can grab one. You can keep it. It's our gift to you. Uh, You can find Luke chapter 24 in a pew Bible on page 831. So grab a Bible, turn to page 831, and we're going to spend some time looking at the resurrection of Jesus. We looked at the trial of Jesus, the the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus during the, the season of Lent. The, the, you know, several weeks leading up to uh, Easter Sunday. And this morning on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at the resurrection. Fitting. Planned, planned it out years ago. So we're, uh, we're, we're excited. So we started the Gospel of Luke uh, years ago, and uh, we're going to finish it, Lord willing, this year, probably in the next uh, month or two. And so we're excited about that. Um, but for this morning specifically, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to look at the, the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus, and we're going to consider the, the significance of and the importance of the, the theological implications of the resurrection of Jesus and why the resurrection of Jesus matters, how, how it affects us and our souls and our lives today. So that's going to be what we spend the next few minutes doing is just considering, looking at, and, and being encouraged by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read Luke 24, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work. It says, but on the very first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. No, it was, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose, and he ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the celebration that is Easter Sunday, we thank you for the the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather as your people and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, to to read about it and hear about it and sing about it and and rejoice in it. Lord, we, we pray that you would encourage our hearts over these next few minutes. We pray that you would uh, impress upon them the glorious truths of the of the resurrection. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, pick it up in verse 1. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. First day of the week is Sunday. Early dawn, just before the sun has come up. Friday afternoon, Jesus was crucified. They were preparing Jesus' body for burial and putting it into the tomb. John 19 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, the man who kind of took the lead in burying Jesus, the man whose tomb it was that Jesus was buried in, 
uh, he and, and a contemporary of his named Nicodemus had applied 75 pounds worth of spices and burial kind of lotions and aloes and myrrh to Jesus. And so now the women are coming back on Sunday morning to apply even more than, than that, even more than the 75 pounds that were already uh, applied. They didn't come Saturday. So presumably if Jesus was buried in the middle of the week, they would have, they would have either just finished the, the burial process that evening or they would have come back first thing the next morning. But Saturday is the Sabbath. And so, uh, you know, religious rules prohibited people from working on the Sabbath, working including carrying dead bodies or carrying spices to dead bodies or anointing dead bodies with burial spices and things like that. So, so Saturday, what we kind of celebrate as Holy Saturday in the church calendar, Saturday between Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' body is there in the tomb. Jesus' followers are kind of scattered to their respective homes and places where they're staying. And they're just, just, it just kind of presses the pause button. Everyone just kind of rests for a day until the third day when the women get up first thing in the morning and, and come to anoint Jesus' body with, with spices. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So in the end of chapter 23, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. Um, actually, we did it last week. Uh, it was, Luke makes it very clear that the women uh, saw the tomb where Jesus was buried. They saw how his body was ar- ar- arranged and how it was laid in the, the tomb. This is all fresh in their minds. It just happened a couple days prior. There's no room for error. They go to, the, go to the tomb. Matthew and Mark specify that the stone that was outside of the tomb was massive. It was, it was huge. And so uh, scholars speculate that this tomb was probably upwards of four or five feet in diameter. So a huge, big, either, either a, a circular disc or a huge boulder of a, of a rock. Speculate that it weighed up to two tons, 4,000 pounds. And the way that the tombs would work that were kind of hewn in rock like this one is that the, the, the stone that would seal the tomb was kind of on a, um, there was a slant. And so it was fairly easy to get the stone in front of the tomb. You just kind of push it, pushing a rock downhill, literally. So one person could kind of come and just kind of give it a nudge, and it would kind of fall into place and sit there. 4,000 pounds of rock stone sitting there. But to get that stone out, like away from the opening so that you could get back in there, would take several people, at least two if not several uh, able-bodied men because it would be pushing a two-ton stone up uh, an incline that it was kind of wanting to push down uh, against it. So moving the stone would not have been an easy task. It wouldn't have been something that anyone could come and do. Certainly wouldn't have been something that uh, if someone had been crucified and, and mistakenly thought to be dead and put in the tomb accidentally, even though they weren't dead, this, this half-dead person certainly couldn't move a big stone like, like this. Not only was there this big stone, though, but there were also Roman guards outside of the, the tomb guarding it. The previous day, on Saturday, uh, Matthew specifies that, uh, that the religious leaders go to Pontius Pilate and they say, hey, um, we think that Jesus might be more dangerous dead than alive. He was dangerous alive because he was, he was teaching all of this, all of this uh, you know, dangerous content about how he's the king of the Jews and how we should be worshiping him. And he's trying to invert, kind of, kind of upend our, our power structure. So he was, he was a dangerous heretic and con man and troublemaker when he was alive. 
But we're afraid that his disciples are going to steal his body and then tell everyone that he's been raised from the dead. So we want you to make sure that some guards stay outside of his tomb for the, for the, unforeseen, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, to, so that we can make sure that his body doesn't get, get stolen. So you've got a huge stone in front of a, a huge rock-hewn tomb. You've got multiple Roman guards, armed guards, standing in front of it. They come here and they find this. This says they found the stone rolled away. Uh, Matthew gives us a little more detail that they, when they got there, the stone wasn't necessarily rolled away yet, but there was an earthquake and the angel, the angel either singular or plural, uh, rolled the stone away. Matthew kind of mentions one angel. Uh, Luke mentions two angels we're going to see in just a moment. So the easy way to kind of reconcile those accounts is that there, there was one angel, like Matthew said, and then there was another angel so for a total of, you know, more, more than one. But um, so, so the, there's this big, huge stone here. The angel comes and rolls the stone away. Uh, Matthew also specifies that the guards see it and they are terrified, scared. They pass out out of just fear and trembling and they fall down like they're dead on the, on the ground. So that happens. Stone is open. Women are there looking inside the tomb. Jesus is not there. The body of Jesus is not there. Who is there are these two men in dazzling apparel that we see in verse 4. Yep, so they're perplexed. They're like, what's going on? Here's these two men in dazzling apparel. And then as soon as the the women see these two men in dazzling apparel, they uh, fall down. They're frightened. They bow their faces to the the ground, which is a fairly uh, common response in the scriptures when you encounter an angel. They're they're big, they're strong, they're immortal, they uh, are, are brilliant, and they are glorious and, and blinding. I mean, it, it, it look, from, from the way that we see people respond and react to angels when they see them in the Bible, it looks maybe like you're looking at the, the face of, of God, or at least as best as we could tell from mortals who have never been in the presence of God. Um, you know, all the, I mean... So yeah, multiple, multiple instances in Scripture where people respond just like, like this. Peter, uh, when he sees an angel in Acts 10, says he's terrified. Mary, uh, like the, the circumstances around Jesus' birth when, when an angel comes to visit Mary and her cousin, the angel constantly has to, like the, his, his opening line is, do not be afraid. Because presumably... We, we, can, we can deduce that you would be afraid. If you see an angel like this, kind of glorious, blinding light, you would be afraid. So the angel says, do not be afraid. In the book of Revelation, uh, John sees an angel, and he instinctively, just like this, falls down on his face and actually starts to worship the angel. And the angel has to say, twice, two times in the book of Revelation, the angel has to say to John, don't do that. Like, I'm not God, you're not supposed to worship me, you are supposed to worship God just like I am supposed to worship God. And so kind of repeatedly throughout Scripture we see that angels are glorious and incredible and when you see them, it's scary and the instinctive response is to avert your eyes and fall down on your feet out of fear and reverence, which is what these women do in Luke 24. And the angel says, get up. Right? You, you don't, you're not just like to John, you're not supposed to worship me. And then, then he says, why, or yeah, they, the two men, uh, why do you seek the living among the dead? They're perplexed, right? The, the angels are, are, you know, 
as confused as the women are at the empty tomb, and as confused as they are at these two men in dazzling apparel that are standing there and speaking with them, and kind of as perplexed and amazed as they are, these angels are equally perplexed, right? Um, You know, they, they cannot understand why the women would be surprised, right? They can't understand why the women would be here looking for Jesus, who is very much alive, and who, by their estimation, these women should know that Jesus is very much alive. So why are you here? This is where dead people are. And Jesus told you he was not going to be dead. So why are you looking for him where you would expect to find a dead person? Why are you not looking for him where you would expect to find a a living person? Why are you seeking the living among the the dead? And then they they answer their own question. He, He is not here but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and must be crucified and on the third day rise. So they say, why are you looking for Jesus here in a graveyard where dead people are? You of all people, given that you were around Jesus and followed him for a long time, you of all people should know that Jesus is alive. So we're kind of at an impasse here. The women are thinking, Jesus is dead. We saw him die on the cross. We were crying. We were mourning. We're here to anoint his dead body. And the angel is saying, Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead. And they actually point the women to Jesus' own words. So this is, they're quoting elsewhere in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Multiple times throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus predicts his own death. John chapter, Luke chapter 9, verse 44 He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Luke 17, verse 25, first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus is kind of seeding the ground, kind of setting up expectations that I am not going to rise to some prominent, you know, political, military uh, level of leadership like you might have expected the Messiah to do. I'm going to die. I'm going to save my people by dying for them. But it's not just his death that Jesus at multiple points makes reference to in the Gospel of Luke. It's also his resurrection. So Luke 9, 22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed, and on the third day he will be raised. So it doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus isn't like trying to, you know, play his cards close to the vest or speak in riddles. He's very clear about what he about what's going to happen, he's going to die, and on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead. Luke 18, verses 32 to 33. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is very clear, uh, unambiguous, explicit about his death and his resurrection. If the women didn't didn't expect Jesus to be resurrected, if they were surprised at the resurrection, if Jesus' disciples and apostles didn't expect it or were surprised at it, it was not because Jesus did not tell them it was going to happen. And yet they're surprised. Which is also kind of a recurring theme in the Bible. God speaks clearly emphatically, without ambiguity. God speaks to his people. His people hear and listen and receive God's word, and then shortly thereafter, they forget God's word. 
quick aside, that's why church attendance is so important, right? Because we are a forgetful people, right? The people who lived and walked and rubbed shoulders with Jesus were a forgetful people. The people that Jesus commissioned as the apostles to lead and kind of be the foundation of the church for all of eternity, they were a forgetful people, and we are a forgetful people. Why, when God created the world, he worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day, kind of building in this rhythm, building in this pattern of work and rest, but also building in this rhythm of uh, a gathering as the people of God and reminding ourselves regularly of the truths of the gospel. God knew, having created us and kind of knowing us inside and out, God knew that it would take somewhere around seven days for us to forget the truths of the gospel. For us to, to need again, to gather together, and to, to hear the truths of the gospel, right? To, to encourage one another in the truths of the gospel, right? Every Sunday when we gather, we're not hearing anything new. We're not hearing anything different. We're not hearing anything novel. We're hearing the same gospel that Jesus was delivered into the hands of sinful men, that Jesus was crucified, and that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We're hearing the same gospel that says if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want to be reconciled to God, you have to turn from your sin and trust in him. We're hearing the same thing over and over and over, week in, week out, because we need to hear the same thing over and over, week in and week out, because we are a forgetful people. If you're convicted by how quickly you forget the Word of God, if you're convicted by how quickly you forget uh, Scripture verses that you memorize, if you're convicted by how quickly you hear the Gospel and you hear that God loves you and that God will never let you go, and then seemingly in an instant you kind of revert back into shame and guilt and fear and worry and anxiety, if you're convicted by that, you're in, you're in good company because Jesus' closest followers here when he was on earth had experienced the same exact ebbs and, and flows. Jesus' 12 disciples and the women who traveled with them experienced that same forgetfulness. And if you're convicted by that, like these guys were, then the best antidote for that is to be a part of a local church to lean into a local church, to gather with the people in that local church, to worship God with them, to hear the gospel week in and week out with them, to be encouraged by them and to encourage them. If, we're, if any of us, myself included, if any of us are left to our own devices and kind of tasked with forging through the Christian life on your own, all by yourself, it is all but guaranteed that you will forget the gospel, and you will start to live as if the gospel is not true. That's, that's, that's the fate of every single, every single one of us. Our only hope that we have in remembering the gospel and persevering in the faith is, is the church. It's other people who can encourage us and help us to do, to do that. Right? Our, our only help of persevering in the faith is to, uh, to congregationalize our faith and to kind of live it out in the context of a community that's helping us to persevere together. So 
The angel says, why are, you, why are you seeking Jesus among the dead? He's risen. He told you he would rise from the dead. He has risen from the dead. He is alive right now. And in verse 8, it says, they remembered his words. Because that's what happens when you're reminded of something. Right? When you forget something and you are reminded of that thing, you remember that thing. So as soon as the women hear these angels say, don't you remember what he told you? Don't you remember how he told you that he would be killed? Don't you remember how he told you that he would be raised from the dead? Don't you remember that? They immediately remember that. I do remember that. I do, I do remember the truths of the gospel. Now that you mentioned it, I remember Jesus saying that. And that's, that's what happens in the corporate gathering of the local church. As we gather together and we remind one another of the truths of the gospel and we remember the truths of the gospel ourselves, right? We, we teach one another. We admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs like, like Paul says to do in Colossians 3. We're reminded of the gospel so that we can remember the gospel together. The person who comes to church discouraged, beaten down, because their life is hard, beaten down by besetting sins that continually defeat them and dominate them. They can come together with the people of God and be reminded of the gospel and remember it and be encouraged. The person who keeps falling back into sin and folly and legalism, they can, they can come to church and be encouraged and be reminded. The person who is convinced that, that God could never love them because of what they've done or because of what has been done to them, the couple who's been fighting and their marriage is in trouble, the parents whose kids are walking away from the faith and they're discouraged and fearful about it, people who are struggling physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, financially. We, we can come together as the church. We can remind one another of the truths of the gospel. We can speak the gospel to one another. We can be reminded of it and we can remember it together. We can remind one another that, that God loves us, that Jesus died for us, that if God did not spare his own son for, from us, but graciously gave him up for us on the cross, will he not also give us everything else that we need? We can remind one another that if God is for us, then no one else and nothing else can ever be against us. We can remind one another that there's nothing that could ever, ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, neither death or life or trials, or suffering. Nothing in all of creation could ever separate you from the love of Christ. The whole point of church is that we remind one another of these truths because we are prone to forget these truths. So we gather, we remember, and we're encouraged until we forget again, and then we gather again, and then we remember again, and we are encouraged uh, again. So don't overlook how vitally important the gathering of the local church is for your soul. Don't overlook how vitally important the church is for you to persevere in the faith and be encouraged in the gospel. Verse 9, it says, In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So the women, 
have been encouraged. They have been reminded. They now remember. They now believe. They are now trusting in the risen Christ. And they go and they tell the 11 apostles, again, the, 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 you know, the giants among giants, the leaders of leaders. The, these are men who, uh, when Revelation 21 describes the eternal heavenly city. It says that there are foundation stones built around it, and on those stones are the names of these men. These are like, I mean, these are the heroes of the faith. And the women come to them and say, Jesus is risen. Remember how Jesus told us that he would be raised from the dead? He is, right? Jesus is risen. How great is this? And they uh, blow these women off. They they have no, no time for them at all. Verse 10, there was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who told these things to the disciples. This is an important verse. Luke 24, verse 10 is important for a number of reasons. We'll just, we'll just uh, briefly touch on two of them. The first is that women matter. And they have uh, distinct and particular dignity. They have a high calling. God values them and cares deeply about them. Women were right there, standing next to Jesus on Good Friday when all of his disciples had scattered and fled. Women were there, faithful, strong, brave. Women were there, the first people to discover the empty tomb on Easter morning. Not, not Peter, the rock, Right? Not John, the disciple that Jesus loved, but women were the first ones to, dis- to discover the empty tomb. And that detail is, just, is described and recounted in all four Gospels. Four out of four. There, there, are, there are not a lot of details and things that make all four. Right? Usually they bat 250, 500. But to bat 1,000, all four Gospels, there, there are a handful of, of things that kind of meet, meet the, check those boxes, and the women discovering the, the empty tomb is one of them. In our cultural moment, biblical Christianity has something of a stigma attached to it around sexual morality, around gender, because the Bible teaches unequivocally on on those things the bible teaches that sex is a good thing but it's specifically to be enjoyed within enjoyed within the confines of biblical marriage between a man and a woman the bible's clear that god's will for his people is chastity outside of marriage and fidelity within marriage and that's not a popular sentiment in our cultural moment right the world wants to say Anything goes, whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as there's consent, right? As long as there's consent, then anything else, nothing else matters. And the idea that God would care about what we do in the privacy of our own home, or that God somehow has authority over what we do in the privacy of our own home, is odious. It's offensive to the world. And so biblical Christianity is kind of branded, it's labeled as regressive and, and legalistic not, but it's perceived that way. The same thing with gender. The Bible teaches clearly that, that men and women are different, that both genders were created specially and specifically by God to reflect his 
uh, image in different and complementary ways. Masculinity says something about God. Femininity says something about God. Being a godly man is to reflect the image of God. Being a godly woman is to reflect the image of God. And the Bible is clear that God has called males to certain responsibilities, most notably uh, spiritual leadership and headship in the the home and in the the church. So husbands and fathers have unique responsibilities to love and lead their family and set the, you know, set the pace spiritually in their family. Husbands and fathers are essentially like a tiny little pastor of a tiny little church that is your home, that is your family. The Bible's clear on that, right? Unique roles, responsibilities for, for, for men And the world finds that offensive. It finds that odious. The world wants to say, men and women are not different. It's sexist for you to even say that. There's nothing that a man can do that a woman can't do. While you're at it, no one's even allowed to tell me whether I am a man or a woman. That's a decision I get to make. Change as I see fit. The idea that there's a difference between males and females, or the idea that God is the one who tells me whether I am a male or a female is offensive. And so biblical Christianity is seen as regressive and patriarchal and anti-woman. But verses like Luke 24.10 obliterate that, right? It's saying clearly and without question that the Bible is not anti-woman. The Bible doesn't try to silence women, marginalize women. Right? The, the Bible doesn't want to keep women from realizing their full potential. The Bible is not on the side of powerful males who abuse women. Nothing can be further from the truth. Right? God values women every bit as much as he does men. God calls women to meaningful ministry in the church and in the home, just like he does men. God brings, uh, women bring things to the table that men cannot a church that's full of godly men but has no godly women is at a severe disadvantage and will not be able to fulfill the calling that God has given to it. A home without a mother is at a severe disadvantage and will not be able to operate at its full potential like it would if mom were there. Texts like this and, and numerous others show us just how integral and how mission-critical women are to God and to God's plan for the world. I mean, so God's first thing to, to all of humanity is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You need women to do that, right? Uh, you know, Jesus was born uh, as, as the God-man into this world from a woman. Jesus traveled for three years and did ministry, and the people who were funding his ministry were women. Women are there at the cross. Women are there at the resurrection, The Bible may not conform to the 21st century's understanding of gender. It might teach things that are radical, like, like that there's a difference between males and females, but the Bible has an incredibly high view of women. The Bible has... The Bible has a higher view of women than any of us do. The Bible has a higher view of women than the most radical, militant feminist that you could imagine. The Bible has a higher view of women than all of those people because, the, because God loves and honors and esteems and celebrates and affirms women. 
So that's one thing that we get from verse 10. The value and the dignity and the importance of, of women in the church and in the, the world. The other is the truthfulness of the word of God. So track with me for a second here. All four Gospels in the New Testament say that the empty tomb was found by women. Now let's kind of set that in its cultural, historical context. Because here's, here's what a skeptic would say about, about, about you know, the, the resurrection, right? A skeptic would say, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading what you're saying, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus was raised from the dead just like he walked on water, just like he fed thousands of people with a handful of bread, just like a a virgin got pregnant and had a child. I'm hearing all that. Sure, whatever you say. Frankly, none of it's true. It's a story that some guy made up. Might as well be reading Harry Potter. It's, It's every bit as realistic, and it's every bit as historically true. But think about that objection that the Gospels are not true. The Gospels were made up by people who wanted to perpetuate this kind of myth, this kind of religious conviction that they had that they wanted to kind of, kind of start. If you were making it up, if the Gospel writers were making up what they were writing, what would they write and what wouldn't they write? If you were making up the Gospel, who would you say found the empty tomb? The fact of the matter is, as high of a view as the Bible has of women, as high of a view as God has of women, the first century Israel did not have a very high view of women. Women couldn't own property. Women couldn't transact business. Uh, Women weren't allowed out of the house. If they did come out of the house with their husbands and they came to worship in the temple or the synagogue, they were kind of relegated over to this second-class space. The men are allowed here. Women are over there on the side. Women weren't allowed to testify in court because people thought women couldn't get the facts straight. They can't remember what they saw. They can't be trusted to reproduce it truthfully. So if there's a crime and you want to witness it, it better be a male because that's the only people that we can can trust. And so if if you're a... con man writing a fake gospel, who would you say found the empty tomb? You wouldn't say a woman found it, because that's an embarrassing detail, right? In fact, the only reason that you would say that a woman found the empty tomb is if a woman found the empty tomb, Right? is if that is what really happened. If you're going to make something up, you're going to make up a better, more... Con- you're not going to make up a detail that's going to make the gospel that you're trying to perpetuate less credible. But all four gospel writers have this same detail, that it's women who found the empty tomb. So we read a detail like that, and what, sh- what that should immediately tell us is, oh, th- this really happened. Right? No one would make that up. It's counterproductive to make that up. So if it's not made up, it must have really happened. Right? What, what, what the Bible records and recounts is what really happened. The Bible is not interested in omitting details that are inconvenient. It's not interested in whitewashing its characters and its heroes. The Bible is painfully, to the point, at, at times embarrassingly clear and truthful and honest about what happened. So verse 10, we should read that and be reminded that God values and thinks highly of women, and we should read that and we should uh, be, 
be encouraged that the, tr- that the word of God is true and that it can be trusted. Verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Again, this is, these are the apostles. These are the men who are going to be immortalized for all of eternity as the leaders of the church. These are, this is Peter and James and John who were there at the transfiguration. They saw the, 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 the glory of Christ uh, there, there for, for a moment. These are the men who heard all of Jesus' teachings, saw all of his miracles. They, they heard Jesus say that he was going to be raised from the dead on the third day, and they saw Jesus raise other people from the dead multiple times. If there's anyone in all of human history who is not going to be surprised, not going to be shocked, and who is going to trust that Jesus rose from the dead, it would be these 11 men, and they did not believe them. Again, the Bible is not, it doesn't try to hide these kinds of embarrassing detail. These, these heroes of the faith, the Bible is not trying to um, paint them in some sort of rose-colored hue. It's painfully clear about who they are and kind of where, where they were at at this moment. And it's written like that to encourage us, right? It's written like that so that when we look at our own life, right? When we, when, when we look at our own lives and think, man, God wants me to pray more. I don't pray enough. God wants me to share my faith more. I don't share my faith enough. God wants me to be selfish. But a lot of the times I uh, instinctively am selfish and self-centered. God wants me to be strong in my faith, but my faith is weak and it wavers a lot and I struggle with unbelief. We look at the Bible and the heroes in the Bible are people who that is true of them. They struggle with fear. They struggle with unbelief. So we look at our own lives and we feel discouraged and we feel broken and we feel like we could never live up to what God has called us to live up to. And the good news is that the best men that the Bible has to offer struggled in their faith, struggled with unbelief. They felt a sense of despair. God calls broken people. If you feel broken and inadequate, that's good news. That means you're the kind of person that God calls to lead his his church. The key then, if you, like me and like these apostles here, look inward and find, you know, see, see a wavering faith, if you see unbelief creeping up, the key, the response is to look away from yourself and to look to the risen Christ. So Peter does in verse 12. He rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves. He went home and he was marveling at what had happened. So Peter... Here's the good news of the resurrection. He does not believe it. The one person on the entire planet who should be most inclined to believe it, and he does not believe it, but instead of persisting in his unbelief, he looks away from himself. He doubts his own doubts. He looks away from himself, and he runs to the risen Christ. 
you find yourself, like Peter, wallowing in fear and unbelief and self-pity, then do what Peter did. Look away from yourself. Run to Jesus. Behold the glory of the reality that Jesus has risen, and then marvel at it, and then worship Jesus. God uses broken people when they look outside of themselves and look to Jesus and trust in Jesus. And that's why the resurrection is one of the most important doctrines. That's why the resurrection is just pregnant with theological significance, right? It's one of the most important things that we could ever know or hear or be confronted with. Because the resurrection, like what we see with Peter, the resurrection gives us hope and gives us assurance, Think about this. If, if, if Jesus had died but was never resurrected from the dead, well, first off, he, uh, he wouldn't be the victorious sovereign king that he is, right? If, if Jesus died and wasn't resurrected from the dead, then at best, that's a draw. That's, that's not a win. That's a tie, right? If Jesus dies and stays dead, at best, we don't have a victorious, resurrected king, right? Jesus, right? But, but the reality is, Jesus, in his resurrection, sin doesn't rule over Jesus. Jesus rules over sin. Death doesn't rule over Jesus. Jesus rules over death because of the resurrection. And through the resurrection, we can have assurance of our salvation because the resurrection is what assures us of the sufficiency of the death of Christ to atone for our sin. Apart from the resurrection, any claims about the sufficiency of the death of Christ to save you from your sin, to save you from hell, any claims about that are speculation. They are guesswork. God creates humanity. God loves humanity. Humanity sins against God. God comes to humanity. He enters in. He lives a perfect life that we were called to live but never could. He dies in our place, a death, you know, enduring the wrath of God so that we don't have to. He invites us to enjoy salvation that he purchased for us on the cross by turning from our sins and trusting in him. But if Jesus only died for our sins and never was raised from the dead, how would we know if any of that worked? How would we know if any of it, you know... The resurrection is this tangible thing like a receipt that you hold in your hand, that you know that right, we can look at Jesus and see that death could not hold him. So we must deduce then that his payment for sin was complete. It was finished. There was nothing left for him to do because we see this tangible thing wherein the wrath of God was satisfied. Jesus' death was sufficient and there's no question about it. The resurrection is proof and assurance of that fact. Imagine, imagine, I, imagine I won the lottery, and I'm a billionaire. Imagine I come to you, and I say, I've got more money than I could ever spend. I'd love to bless you. I'd love to give you a gift. I'd love to pay off your house. And you say, that's great. I'm really encouraged by that. So I say, how much do you owe on your house? You say, whatever, $200,000. 
I go to the bank, I get a cashier's check for $200,000, you and I take it together to, the, to your bank, we pay off your mortgage, we send the, I don't even know, you send the note to the city, I guess, they send you a note saying that you own your house, now you get a deed for your home, your house is paid off, no one can ever question you ever again, no one can foreclose on you, no one can kick you out of your house because it's paid off and you have this paperwork to prove it. Scenario number one. Now, scenario number two is I win the lottery. I'm a billionaire. I come to you and I say, I want to bless you. I want to pay off your house. And I say, what's your mortgage payment each month? And you say, you know, whatever, 1200 bucks. I say, great. Every month when the statement arrives, just give me a call. And I'll, I'll pay it off. You never need to worry about paying your mortgage ever again, but just when you get the bill, you call me and, and, and I'll take care of it. But there's no paperwork, there's nothing in writing. You'd be incredibly thankful in that scenario, but you wouldn't walk through life with the same assurance and the same confidence in that scenario because you have no guarantee that six months from now, I'm not, you know, maybe my phone broke. Maybe my battery died and I didn't, couldn't get your call. Or maybe I'm out of the, maybe I'm out of town. Maybe I had a family emergency. So now I'm unreachable. And now you're left thinking, now I got to pay my own mortgage again because I can't, Ben Ben is nowhere to be found. And he said he was going to pay for it, but I didn't get anything that like secured it. I didn't get anything that made it real, right? In scenario one, the payment for your house is paid in full. It's transacted. It's complete. It's been validated. It's been time-stamped. The payment was made. The payment was accepted. And now the beneficiary walks in confidence and assurance. In scenario number two, the payment is ongoing. It's not that it was made. It's that it is being made. It was never actually accepted. It was never declared to be sufficient. And there's no paperwork certifying that that is the case. And so the beneficiary might be blessed. He might be grateful. But he doesn't have the confidence and assurance that the other guy has. That's what happens with the resurrection of Jesus. Validation, vindication, acceptance, assurance, and confidence. Right? When Jesus is hanging on the cross... The last thing he says is, it is finished. Sin has been dealt with, paid in full, I'm done, my job is complete, and it's done. And at the resurrection, that's the Father looking back at Jesus and at us and saying, yeah, that was right, it is finished. His payment for sin is done, I have accepted it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because all the condemnation that was for them was heaped on Christ. There's none left. It's it's impossible. Because of the resurrection, it's impossible for anyone who trusts in Jesus to ever experience any punishment or any judgment or any wrath from God because it was all taken by Jesus. And we can know that it was because Jesus got up out of the grave. If Jesus' death for sin was not sufficient, then Jesus would not and could not have been raised from the dead. Since Jesus was raised from the dead, we can know with absolute certainty that his death for us was sufficient. Our salvation is secure. 
And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we can experience new life. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. On Easter Sunday, we remember that which is of first importance. That Christ died for us to satisfy the wrath of God and forgive our sins. That Christ was buried in the grave to prove that he died. And that Christ was raised from the dead on the third day to prove that his sacrifice for sin was sufficient. And his offer of new life and salvation for his people is genuine and bona fide. On on Easter Sunday, we remember the truth of the gospel together. We trust in it. We rest in it. We rejoice in it, and we celebrate. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead. You're not some religious teacher, some martyr who who died and then stayed dead. You are the sovereign, eternal God who became a man, lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we should have died, and then you got up from the dead. Lord, we thank you that you're alive right now, listening to us right now, interceding for us right now. We thank you for the new life that is ours through your resurrection and for the assurance that we have through your resurrection. Lord, we love you, and we trust you, And we worship you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.